because this is a story about one man, one motorcycle, and one heck of a sense of adventure with a whole world awaiting him. If you've ever wanted to set out and explore the world, if you ever just feel like, ooh, throwing caution to the wind and setting out in search of it all, well, this is the episode for you. If you've got a sense of adventure and you're ready, then I encourage you to hang on because we're about to take off with today's episode. I'll see you inside. What's up, my friend, and welcome to Grit, Grace, and Inspiration. I am your host, Kevin Lowe. 20 years ago, I awoke from a life-saving surgery only to find that I was left completely blind. And since that day, I've learned a lot about life, a lot about living, and a lot about myself. And here on this podcast, I want to share those insights with you. Because friend, if you are still searching for your purpose, still trying to understand why, or still left searching for that next right path to take, we'll consider this to be your stepping stone to get you from where you are to where you want to be. What's up, my friend, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Kevin Lowe, your host, and hey, welcome to episode number 219. Did you know that you're able to take this podcast to another level? Yes, you can do that by signing up for our exclusive mailing list where you get a little personal email from me once a week to brighten your day, to give you a boost. It's a midweek pick-me-up delivered via email on Wednesday mornings. It has the latest and the greatest in the world of grit, grace, and inspiration, along with a little just insight from yours truly. If you would like to sign up, please be sure to visit the link inside of today's show notes. So friend, let's talk about it. Adventure, a sense of adventure. Do you have it or not? (laughs) I feel like that's kind of two different camps. We got the people with a sense of adventure, the people who like to set off, who have no set destination in mind, who don't even have directions. They just have maybe an idea of we're going to head north (laughs) and see where we go. Other people, well, other people, they need a plan. They need a strategy. They need GPS directions. I feel like that's kind of the two different camps we come to adventure when it comes to setting off on a trip. Well, today's guest, he's going to kind of blow your mind because he is going to make you understand that sometimes getting lost is the best thing that can happen to you. Matter of fact, he's taken this so far as to have written a book about it. That book is called Going the Wrong Way. Chris Donaldson is our guest today, coming to us from the beautiful country of Ireland. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we have an amazing Irishman on the podcast today. And he is here to talk to us about his story that involves a motorcycle in the entire world. I mean, I was probably, would you believe, uh, when I was joined the Boy Scouts, some of the older guys had these old British motorbikes, like Norton's and BSAs, and they used to trundle up at the end of our Boy Scout evenings with these bikes, and they'd go off down to the pub or whatever they were doing. 
uh, I think it always struck me the, the, the noise and the excitement of the uh, machines at that stage really impressed me. And then we got the 16, it was like yourself, probably dirt bike and used to run around the fields. And I just couldn't wait to, as, you know, when you're a teenager on your bicycle, the, the thought of actually going up a hill without actually pedaling is just like magic, you know, so I couldn't <laughs> wait to get, get an engine under underneath me so I could actually do that. So from a very early age, I was just enthralled by bikes. And in those days, it was cheaper to ride a bike than it was to drive a car. So it was also a cost factor as well when you were 17 or 18. You, know, you couldn't afford a car, so you rode a motorbike, whereas nowadays it's the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now talk to me. So where did you grow up at? I grew up in Belfast, Northern Ireland during the 70s, in the, uh, which wasn't the most suspicious place to grow up in. Um, middle of the Troubles. Um, I never got too much involved in it myself, but uh, my father's furniture shop got blown up numerous times, and there was lived through school I went to was in the center of Belfast. You would have looked out the windows and seen bombs going off and there'd be uh, lockdowns and people getting shot around the city at various times. So it was a pretty nasty place to be at some stage. But of course, when you're growing up, you didn't really notice that because we didn't know anything else. It was only when I got a bit older, I realized, well, there's places that this sort of stuff doesn't go on. So it would be nice to visit some of these places if people don't sort of shoot each other because they're the wrong religion, you know? Yeah. At an early age, I think it was about 16 or 17, I decided I'd like to go to Australia. And being a biker, I thought, well, the best way to do that would be to ride down a motorbike for a bit of an adventure. So the idea was to ride to India and then ship to Australia from, from the UK, from Ireland. Yeah. And, and how old were you then? Well, I was 21 when I set off from Belfast and I got as far as London. And uh, the Ayatollah mainly decided to take over the American embassy in Tehran. And it was in November 79. So I hadn't got very far. I'd only got about 400 miles. And basically the road east was blocked with the revolution. So I'd, uh, I decided well, I couldn't go back home because I told all my friends would be away for a year and a half and, or for a year and couldn't go back after two weeks. So I decided to go to South Africa instead. But basically after planning this trip for the last sort of four or five years and guidebooks that got my routes planned and so on, my maps, my visas, everything for going to the east. I ended up going down Africa without a notion where I was going. <laughs> okay. So so before I, I start asking you more questions about this actual trip, I mean, what made you want to do this trip? And especially I guess, you know, your 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 first destination of choice was Australia. Why Australia? I think it, it's a few relations there. I reckon I could get a job there for a while and see a bit of the world. Uh, it's obviously an English-speaking country. See a bit of the world on the way there. And I wanted I think I wanted to challenge myself as well. I didn't want to just fly. I wanted to sort of challenge myself. When you're growing up, you're always under the uh, auspices of your parents and then your friends, your teachers, your lecturers, the society around you. You're always under sort of some sort of influence from from outside. I wanted to just get away from travel on my own and find out about myself rather than what I was what I was under the auspices of somebody else, you know. So I wanted to I was keen to be away on my own. Didn't want to go away with somebody else. So I didn't really know that at the time, but looking back on it, I think that's what it was, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Now, what kind of motorcycle were you riding? Well, I had a Motoguzzi Le Mans, which was the coolest bike in the, in the street in those days. Um, it was a bit of Italian flash. It was a car, what we call a cafe racer, which was good for scooting around motorways and fast corners, but it wasn't really a touring bike. 
So it converted into Turing bag. It just put higher bars on it, a screen and top boxes and panniers. And it was a sort of wolf in sheep's clothing. It was uh, still a high-performance bike with a Turing kit on it. But I thought it'd be okay for going to India because it was also pretty much tarmac roads the whole way there. But of course, when I got to Africa, I had to cross the Sahara Desert. So it was totally out of uh, out of the picture, out of the, off the wall for crossing a desert of sand. 500, 500 miles worth of sand on a basically on a standard road bike. Yeah. Now, all of this, all of this venturing across the world by yourself, right? Yeah. Well, you meet up with people along the way, you go in the same direction and travel with them for a bit. But the nice thing about that is if you don't get on or you want to go somewhere else, you just say bye bye and why you go on your own again. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay, dude. So this is, this is so cool. Now, we're talking a massive trip, this undertaking, whether whether to South Africa or Australia, either one. I mean, a massive trip. How long did it end up taking you to get to South Africa? It took me about five months to get to South Africa. I think I got there about April after leaving in October. So okay. uh, Africa was pretty tough going. You know, going through the Middle East, through Israel and Syria and Jordan. And Syria was pretty dodgy at that stage. Israel was just in between wars, I suppose. And in fact, most of Africa was between civil wars or revolutions or something going on at some stage. I went through Uganda just after Idi Amin, if you remember him. Particularly nasty character. Yeah. Through, through all his politicians to the crocodiles. As they say, after that, he went a bit off the wall. But yeah. uh, went through Rhodesia just after it became Zimbabwe in South Africa in the middle of apartheid. So it was, it was pretty uh, rough going. And it's one of those situations that if, it, if I had known what I was going into, I probably wouldn't have done it um, because it wasn't really that stupid. It was pretty stupid, but it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to imagine in a sort of pre-internet age that you you know you had a guidebook, you had what you were taught in school, but you, you know it's much harder to get information about somewhere. Nowadays, you just Google whatever you want to know, and you can book your hotels, you can see how far it is, you can communicate online whatever you want so online but in those days you know you, you really didn't know what was beyond the next country unless you'd done your homework i mean at one stage i drove off out of sudan into uganda i actually drove off the edge of my map i had to swap maps with somebody coming up north and <laughs> find out where where the country was what country was going to next so looking back if i'd known what i was going into <laughs> i wouldn't have done it <laughs> so Ignorance is bliss sometimes, you know? Yes, yes, of course, of course. Now, along this way, I mean, is there anything when you, when you think back? I mean, obviously, there had to be countless just incredible experiences, but but any like kind of most notable that you could share that maybe, maybe moments that were kind of like, now this is why I'm doing it. Maybe, maybe because it scared the crap out of you and you're like, Woo, maybe I survived that, or it was just something amazing. Anything stand out? Well, funny, the weird thing about people is sometimes it's the hardest things are the most memorable. And driving across the desert, I was supposed to take a train across, and we missed a train. There wasn't going to be another train for another week. So we joined up with some other guys and we rode across. It was about four or 500 miles, and it took me the best part of it, took me over a week, about eight, nine days. And in fact, the next week's train actually beat us to it. But, um, you know, some days we would be traveling, digging and pushing and riding for all day and maybe cover 10 miles through the 
the sand was so so difficult. Other days you'd maybe do a hundred miles in the hard packed sand. But looking back, it was one of the most memorable times because you were driving through the desert in the middle of nowhere, following the Nile, completely sort of back to basics, back to nature, looking at the stars every night. And thinking back, it was it was a wonderful time. But I wouldn't want to do it again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so getting to South Africa was was quite a feat in those days um, because it was with sanctions, it was pretty much cut off from the world. So it was it was sort of breaking through the the bar- various political barriers and physical barriers as well. But South Africa enjoyed South Africa the feeling of, of completing that challenge, I suppose. You know. But yeah, there was other times Tanzanian army had, had ousted him, but there wasn't a government set up yet. So there was a curfew every night. Uh, there was child soldiers running around with AK-47. So it was, it was a pretty scary place to be. It was probably one of the most scary places. Go down to, to Cape Town, which, as I said, was a, it, was a, it was a feeling of elation getting there. But it was, it was kind of short-lived because one thing about a journey is sort of realized that it wasn't really traveling to go there for any particular reason. So... When I got there, that was the end of the journey, and you know, it's nearly a disappointment then because you know when you're enjoying the journey as a day to day life, it's nearly a disappointment when the journey's over because that's the end of that trip gone. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That makes total sense. Now, what happened when when you did reach the end? I mean, what happened then? How did you did you go back home? Yeah, well, God, it was. Uh, it's hard to get out of South Africa, but I managed to get a job on a yacht, sailing yacht, and a yacht race coming back to Europe, which is a sort of predecessor of the likes of the Volvo Ocean Race, which are it's like a Formula One of yacht racing. But in those days, I was able to talk my way onto the boat with a bit of dinghy sailing experience. <laughs> <laughs> so after crossing Africa on a motorbike, I found myself in the middle of a, a yacht race coming up the south and north Atlantic. So... Um, call that lucky or unlucky, but uh, it was quite an adventure as well in its own right because the rudder broke off at one stage and we ended up having to stop in a little island in the middle of the Atlantic and get that fixed. But it was at that stage, it was traveling for the sake of traveling, as I said, really enjoying it. And then I got the, the, ship, the sponsors of the race shipped the bike to the States. So I picked it up in a, uh, three months later and rode up to uh, Seattle and then Vancouver, across Canada. And then down through down east in seaboard, stopped in North Carolina for a couple of months to replenish. Got a job to replenish a wallet there, and really enjoyed the states. Um, okay, whoa, 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 whoa! So going through all of you know Africa, it wasn't enough. Now you're like, we need a new continent to explore. <laughs> and so you, <laughs> I mean, you act like you act like it's a new neighborhood. No, it's a whole other continent. <laughs> well, that's, that's why I've called the book going the wrong way. Which <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 is a story of my life. Just basically yes. so, you know. But yeah, it was it made me realize that um, traveling's about the journey, not about the destination. So I just wanted to keep the journey going as long as I could. My parents by this stage were going up the walls wondering what I was doing, you know, but. Yeah. When you're young, or you're 21, 22, you think you're invincible and nothing can stop you <laughs> and you can do anything, you know? <laughs> yeah. Now, so when you're traveling through America and stuff, like what time frame was that? I think I spent about six months in the States on and off. I really enjoyed America. Yeah. Got into lifestyle and it was hard to, it was actually hard to, to get back on the road after that because I wanted to go to South America at that stage and just complete that side of the continent. But it was hard work getting going uh, after so again, a bit soft with easy lifestyle. 
but you know, had it down to South America, it's through Florida, it's down to Texas and down to Central America. I was running out of money, running out of motivation, I suppose, as well. It sort of covered, as you said, why why are you doing this? I was starting to wonder why I was doing it to the stage yourself. So, yeah, we got as far as Bolivia and I caught hepatitis and had to shack up in a hotel for a while, ran out of money, and that was basically, I had to make my, I was hoping to get to Tierra del Fuego down the bottom, but I cut it short and went to Buenos Aires to, in Argentina. And shipped wow. on from there. So, as I said, left for Australia and ended up in Argentina a year and a half later. Okay. Uh, but one of the hardest <laughs> things probably was actually the finances because the, the trip should have taken about four to six months. I had about thousand pounds then saved up, probably equivalent to about five thousand dollars now. But I didn't make that last for a year and a half. So you can imagine it was pretty <laughs> tight going at that stage. of living like a living sleeping outside the road and that sort of thing. <laughs> so that was one of yeah. the main issues, I suppose, of money. But uh, wow. I suppose that what I did then at Park, I started writing a book about the about the trip, and then somebody else wrote a book about something similar, and I, I just gave up, put my papers away for mm. a long time, and uh, got on a normal life for forty years. Okay, so what I'm kind of curious about, though, is once you finish this, and in you, you went back home did you go back to your your hometown yeah i went back to belfast and i had a job in the family business um and sort of motorbikes and traveling and was sort of an overdose to them at that stage so i was happy enough staying at home at that stage for a while so i got yeah. into the family business and developed that into a property company and it diverted into some several different sort of directions over the years I was reasonably successful. I think all the lessons I learned when I was traveling came in useful uh, about motivating myself and persevering with difficult situations. So it made me a harder individual to to go through life, to meet up, meet with life's trials and tribulations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, what, what I was wondering was after such a long time being on the go, always experiencing new things, I had kind of wondered if it was hard for you to transition back into quote unquote normal life again. Yeah, it was difficult at the time. I think it was sort of maybe suffering from PSTD, whatever you call it, a bit because yeah. you're sort of, you know, you're living on your own, traveling on your own. Every day is different. Every day is another stress and another, uh, you wake up every morning in a different place, the side of the road or some doll's house. You really don't know what's going to happen the next day which is part of the excitement of it. But after a year and a half of it, certainly it was feeling pretty drained. And then going back to normal life, the same thing happens every day in Groundhog Day to an extent in any job. Uh, it was difficult to motivate myself for a while, but I, I think I did it by bought a house, renovated a dad, just got stuck into work as a challenge and used my energies in that sort of direction rather than traveling. But I had to make a definite decision. Listen, I'm going to you know, it's going to be difficult. I'm going to have to keep, get my knuckle down and keep my head down and concentrate on this. I'm going to succeed. Otherwise, I have met up with other people since then who have found it practically impossible to settle down after a trip like that. And it had negative implications from it, you know. Yeah. Never quite settled back into normal life as such. So you, though, you settled back down until 42 years later, and then you got the itch again, huh? How did this come about that 42 years later, like, let's give it another go? 
Well, yeah, funny enough, there's a guy called Ian McGregor who's done a couple of motorbike trips around the world. You may have heard of him as a... In Star Wars and a few other movies. I okay, okay. So real quick, I'm gonna let you continue. But I'd been trying to think of his name because I watched a documentary with him yeah. and another guy on Apple where they did an electric motorcycle from the tip of South America. That's right. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, he's, he's actually a bit of a motor guzzy freak as well as myself. Yes. Italian motorbikes. So I got wind of that. God, I got this guy's gonna do it in a motor guzzy. Gonna to go down to South America in a motor guzzy. I'm going to write a book about it. So I thought, well, I'm going to write my book first. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Greg Kudos, the guy, did what he did. Uh, but it was a very different trip than mine, being with a yes. bunch of guys and a camera crew and all the rest of the sponsorship. Very of different course. from being on your own. So I thought, well, I want to get my story out. So I decided to finally yeah. get around to finishing my book 40 years later, which I thought was going to be more difficult than it was because your memory fades after a while. But it was amazing how much... You used reading my notes, reading my diaries, my journals, it all came back and what I was thinking and what I was doing when I was 21, 40 yeah. years later. And it actually gave me a much better insight into it, being able to look back and my young self, as I say, doing those things and meeting those issues and problems and how I got around them. Yeah. With the sort of knowledge I have now, looking back as, as a wise old owl, if you like, <laughs> uh, to write the book and give it a different layer, different uh, different sort of overview on it. So it's very much a sort of coming-of-age story rather than just a motorbike trip. The book was a, came out three years ago, and it's been a bestseller on Amazon quite a bit, quite a few months. It's done remarkably well. I'm really pleased with it. I was never an intellectual at school, an academic particularly. So I think if there's a story, there's a book on everybody. But if, if I can write a book that's a success and a bestseller, just about anybody can, you know? Yeah. And one of the great things about technology is the e-books and audiobooks and uh, the Amazon system that you can actually sit in Belfast, write a book, and get it be selling it. You know, the States is one of the biggest markets. Australia is one of you know selling as many books in Australia as I am in the UK. So it's amazing how small the world's got from that point of view. But yeah, so um, one of my mates said, "Well, you wrote, you never actually got to Australia, so why not give another go?" So I still had the same <laughs> old motorbike sitting in the garage. And <laughs> so well, I'm going to do it. I might as well do it in the same bike. So I have a family and a job self-employed but still have obligations so we decided to do it two weeks on and leave the bike where we were and flew back fly back and back to work and fly out again two three months time and do it over stages like that so it took me a year and a half different we went to athens and then to israel and back to athens again because i couldn't get out of israel into jordan and then traveled across turkey into iran down to dubai and then left the bikes in dubai again up to Iran to Pakistan for another leg. Then the final leg was to uh, Pakistan across India to Nepal, where I flew the bike to Australia last last March. Just so, so it was finally making a triumphant journey down the west, east coast of Australia after it took me 43 years to get there <laughs> on a bike and myself with a combined age of 109. So it's going to be some <laughs> sort of record break there. But uh, so, yeah, I'm not a faster rider, but I get there in the end. Yeah. Wow. 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 That is incredible. So now, though, I mean, we're talking we're talking a lot older when you make this ride. How was it compared to your younger self? Just the physical toll? Well, physically, it was fairly, um, I mean, when I was younger, I was able to ride all day and do 500 miles and then go out and party all night. Yes. Whereas, 
<laughs> now when I wrote all day, <laughs> you find a nice hotel, go to bed, have a nice dinner, <laughs> curl up in the wee ball in a nice comfortable bed, whereas before it was on the side of the road or somewhere. So yeah. uh, it was nice to have, it was certainly nice to have a bit more money to be able to spoil myself, but uh, physically it was much more difficult. Yeah, it was tiredness is the main thing and your body, your backs, your muscles ache, and you're not pensioner officially, so certainly made it more difficult from a physical point of view. Mentally, yeah. probably better prepared because uh, I think I was looking back and I think reading my journals and I realized that most, uh, most days I was actually crapping myself. <laughs> it's just terrifying yeah. what was going on, what was going to happen. Whereas now, wisdom, old age, older age, and knowing what was going to happen and having Googled and booking.com and all the sort of modern GPS to find out where you are, you never get lost. You sort of be able to much more knowledgeable about what was going on. And, the world's a slightly yeah. easier place to travel across nowadays, but certainly Iran was still difficult. Pakistan was tricky. I mean, were, did you ever have any moments traveling through some of those countries, like any scary times, you know, with, with just the state of the world? Not really, to be honest. I mean, Iran was certainly, it comes with, we're all press and they, they were told what a terrible place it is, but uh, actually it's one of the friendliest countries I've uh, traveled through. Um, People were lovely. They were very uh, open and hospitable, and wow. totally the opposite of what I was expecting. You know, a um, couple of times, you know, credit cards don't work with sanctions, so you have to use cash. And they have their own credit card system in the place, the gas stations. So you'd have to sometimes have to say to somebody, "Can you fill my tank up?" And I'll give you cash. And a couple of times, they've filled the tank up and said, "No, we won't take your money. Enjoy our country and go on, have a good time." You know, so. Yeah, friendly and want you to come back for meet their family and have dinner and whatever. It's it's like all these things. You what the governments do and what the people are like is very often completely different. In Pakistan as well was a fantastic experience. I had to travel through an unarmed convoy through countries, places, parts like Balochistan where they have a uh, sort of terrorist problem there. I don't know if I've just <laughs> sitting at the back of a Land Rover with a bunch of guys with AK-47s isn't such a big deal when you've been brought up in Northern Ireland, I suppose, during the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> it's like going to school a lot of days, you know? <laughs> well, not quite, but... Uh. Yeah, yeah, well, well, you know, I mean, I have to say, I'm sure most of these people are like, this dude's traveling across the world on a motorcycle. He's got to be crazy. Don't mess with this dude. I mean, <laughs> I suppose one of the interesting things was taking an old bike. Everybody said, I mean, when I took the little on, because he crawled away in the first place when it was newish, it was only two years old. People said, You're mad because it's not a touring bike. It's been no good for that trip. Yeah. Uh, but I proved him wrong then. And I was actually able to do the trip again on it 43 years later on the same 45 year old bike. So, but it's interesting just the technology being able to work on something in you know, an old machine, pre-digital, pre-computerized, something happened, went wrong, or could fix it. You know, most of the things that could, it's a reasonable amount of mechanical knowledge, you could get it sorted out again yourself. Whereas the modern cars and modern machines, modern bikes, something goes wrong, you need to take it to an authorized dealer with the computer program <laughs> to plug yeah. it in and see what tells you what's wrong, you know? So sometimes it's nearly an advantage to have an older machine like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree completely. So we're we're all dying to know. Was Australia worth it? Yeah, it certainly was. I mean, I really enjoyed <laughs> Australia. I got a great welcome from the guys out there. Been waiting for me for forty three years. 
the, the, the slagging, as we would say, the, the, the Australians. And it does sort of maybe realize some of the things that happened to in your life. I realized, you know, if I had, if it left two weeks earlier, I probably would have got through around before the revolution. I could have mm. got to Australia, got a job, got a girlfriend, got set up there. Would I ever have come back? You know, would that have, would that two week delay, leaving Belfast in 79, change my whole, the rest of the, the direction of my life after that? You know, it's, it's strange thinking back and things that happened to you along the way. That are nothing to do with what you've done, or sort of a tangent sets you off on a tangent, which completely changes your how you ended up in your life. Yeah. But, uh, no, I'm not done yet. I'm hoping to take the bike to, to across the states and meet up with a few friends there and bring it back that way and sort of complete circumnavigation on it eventually. Yeah, I mean that poor motorcycle though. I mean, my goodness, that poor thing's like. Dude, can you ever just get an upgrade and let me retire at some point? <laughs> I must admit, I didn't think that when it was coming up to Kathmandu. It's Kathmandu's in the top of, not in the top of the Himalayas, but it's in the Himalayas. And there's a road going up, which is quite steep. And it was, there's a dark track and there's trucks, sand and dust everywhere. And the bike wasn't going well. And I was having to slip the clutch and rev the, the guts out of it to get up the hill. And I thought, this poor bike must be cursing me. What are the way? <laughs> After 43 years, it's still treating me like a dog and you're know, doing the sort of things you should never. Most of me, because the Le Mans are sitting in the garage polished with about 10,000 miles on them at the most. Those mines get 75 and it's been dragged across the world twice, you know. But it was a person who would never talk to me again. It's good. It's good. Listen, old man, I'm old too. What are we doing, man? Exactly. <laughs> so I just feel a bit guilty the old time. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is so funny. So talk to me a little bit more about your book. As far as for somebody who's listening to you, enthralled enough with your story, wants to learn more, tell me a little bit about the book. What can they expect from it? Well, I suppose you know, I started writing the book as a travel journey you know, made 40 years ago. And I realized when I started writing it, I hadn't got a name at that stage. And going the wrong way it was obviously fitting because of as I say, I went to the wrong continent, <laughs> uh, did numerous things the wrong way along the journey, and gone through it by looking by, by hook and by crook. But I realized that I'd gone the wrong way quite a few times in my life and got a lot of pleasure from doing that, sort of traveling the road less traveled, if you like, instead of going the easy way, going the hard way in, in business and in a private life and different things I've done. Obviously, I've been a trait of mine to, to, to go the wrong way on different occasions, different times in my life, and to a different way. But it's what's given me a lot of pleasure and a lot of satisfaction from different challenges I've done. You know, you take the extreme, you can always take a jumbo jet or to, to Australia, and you'll get there, but you won't get any uh, satisfaction out of it. You've just been sitting there, it'll be quite, you're just getting fed and watered the whole way. You, you, so you, you will enjoy, you might enjoy the trip, but you won't get any satisfaction of it. Whereas doing it in a more difficult way, I think I'm a bit demented somehow that I've actually make things make like difficult for myself along the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think you maybe realize that by doing things, making life a bit more difficult for yourself and doing it in a more difficult way, you will get much more out of life. The world these days is very health and safety conscious. So you have to do, you know, we're hammered into us to take, don't take any risks, don't go too fast, don't do anything you shouldn't be doing. In the last 30, 40 years, it's become more and more like that. Sometimes by taking a risk and doing something off the uh, 
beaten track, you can get much more from it. But don't be coming up back to me and yearning if you hurt yourself along the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking the responsibility for you if you do anything that. Don't, don't, don't do what I say, but do what I, that's, that's what I do. But um, no, it's made me realize that, um, as I said, there's more to life than just following the following the rules and the regulations. And people are, should be a bit more individual in what they do sometimes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Man, dude, you are exactly what I thought you were going to be. This awesome guy who's done these incredible things, yet you're so humble. You're so chill. You act like it's no big deal to just travel across the world on a motorcycle twice, going wrong directions and loving every minute of it. Well, once it's careless, twice it's stupid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but... uh, but where is the best place for somebody to, to find your book at? Well, my website's chrisdonaldson.world. But probably the best way is on Amazon, the company that we we love and we hate in the same measure because yes. they're taking over the world, but we can't do without them. Yep. But um, it's on audiobook, it's on Kindle, it's on hardback, it's on paperback. So it's, it's amazing the technology that they have that they can do it. But uh, that's probably Amazon's probably the best place to get it. Going the wrong way by Chris Donaldson. Amazing. Amazing. Chris, last question for you. Through all of these experiences that you've had, whether it was traveling the world, whether it was just being at home, when you share this story in your book or here on the podcast, what's the theme that you want somebody to come away with? Like why, what is your reason why for doing this? Pretty selfishly, I suppose. You do something like that, you do it for yourself. I'm lucky to have a very understanding wife and very patient with me <laughs> to let me do these things. But I suppose, uh, yeah, you know, if, if the original trip is a coming of age story, this trip has been a coming of old age story. And my main thing with people of my age in the 60s, late middle 60s, 70s, whatever, is get off your ass and go out and do it because generally you can do what you did when you were 21. You just have to do it a bit slower or have a bit more rest afterwards. But it's amazing what you can do if you put your mind to it. And there's more, got to be more of a life than people re- retiring from 40 years of working life and ending up digging the garden and playing golf twice a week. Get a motorbike or get a car, get whatever it is you want to do and go and do it. Don't just sit and talk about it. <laughs> Chris, dude, listen to you. Just do it. You just need to pack some Advil, an ice pack, and a heating pad because you're going to be a little bit sore and get out there and ride the bike and cross the Sahara and do the thing, you know, because bike and go. Yeah, I love it, dude. I love it. Chris, man, you have made my day 110% (laughs) over. Thank you for being here on the podcast. Pleasure, Kevin. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Well, for you listening today, I can only hope that you are smiling as big as I am still kind of chuckling at what a crazy, awesome guy Chris Donaldson is and do yourself a favor. Please check out today's show notes, grab a link to get a copy of his book today. You will not be disappointed with that said, this is another episode of grit, grace, and inspiration. Have an awesome day.